Um, all right. Well, welcome everyone, and thanks for joining us on episode eleven. I think we are, Gal. Is it eleven or twelve, or podcast. is there is there like a missing episode, or I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. But it just no, did. I think we went straight from ten to eleven. Okay. <laughs> and here with us today is Bob Steinbugler, who we're honored to host as an amazing designer, an incredible life story, a huge motorcycle aficionado, and a quite successful business that he's turned into which we're very excited to learn about. So, Bob, welcome to the group, to this podcast today. Thank you. And, and, and uh, you have an incredible history of um, industrial design all the way from, um, I want to say, the, the big blue, right? Uh, all, all the yes. way, all the way to motorcycles and, and everything in between. And um, I looked up your, your LinkedIn and said, Bachelor of Science, Master of Arts, Electrical and Electronic Engineering, Industrial Design, uh, Master Master of Arts, I said it already, um, and from Cornell University. Any 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 degrees that I'm missing? That would be that would be <laughs> correct, but you're missing a little bit of architecture in there too. So, uh, but they're all kind of related: engineering, architecture, and, and product design from Cornell. Yeah. Nice. And then um and then you turned into a um a full-time motorcycle builder and then an importer, uh a collector. Um how many and and you run you run the Bimota Spirit Museum and and shop. So how many Correct. how many motorcycles do you have right now in your collection? It's it. I don't know. I don't count them. There's probably you know maybe a hundred. There's probably a few more. Um, the the number changes on a regular basis, and it's not about numbers. It's about you know the passion of being in a bike collector. That's what I'm trying to explain to my girlfriend every time I have more than you know a few motorcycles in my garage. How, how did you how did you explain it to the wife? Uh, well, my wife is extremely understanding. And we have always had kind of mad. She's a career professional designer as well. So we've always kind of had a, a parallel financial system. And as long as I don't take money from, you know, the grocery bill and the rent bill, I'm free to do with my money, whatever I want to do. So uh, no questions asked. And she likes motorcycles. So that, that helps a little bit. Well, how do you decide? Right. How do you decide which motorcycle to take to the store today? Just any mini mini mo. How how do you decide which motorcycle you want to ride on today? Um, pretty much where I'm going and what I'm going to do. Um, if it's to run an errand, it's one bike. If it's to go out by myself and have a little bit of fun, it's a different bike. And if my wife and I are going two up someplace to dinner, then it's a different bike. <laughs> which ones are your are your most favorites in your collection? Well, now it's it's Pomodas. It you know I've I've had a very very long history with with many different bikes, but uh, about in the early '90s I got I got really in, interested in Pomoda, and when I got my first Tezzi, and uh, ever since then it's just been sort of weeding out all the other things and and trying to focus because you know you could there's so many cool bikes in this world. If, if you had the resources, you know, you could have a thousand bikes and, and 
one of the ways I, I've recently been trying to, to focus myself is just say if it's not a Vomoda or something that I had when I was 20 years old, then I've, I've just got to get rid of it and, and stay focused. Uh, you decided on how to build a collection. And um, what got you passionate about motorcycles in the first place? Um, getting out of the house and, and independence, you know, like every other 14-year-old kid. You know, it's like uh, I had a bit of a dominating father, and uh, I just really needed to get some independence. And my very first bike was a Suzuki Exus 6 Hustler, a little 250 two-stroke with the six forward speeds. I could beat any Harley on the street, and uh, I was just really, really having fun. My first big bike was a Triumph Bonneville, and my first Italian bike was a Moto Guzzi V7 Sport. So being a, a professional design person, um, you know, Italy has always been the mecca for design. It's the mecca for design, for fashion, for automobiles, for products, for whatever. And I had never really made that connection in motorcycle world until I stumbled upon a Moto Guzzi V7 Sport. And that changed that changed my perspective about the whole motorcycle thing. And then I I focused on the, the Guzzi's and the Ducati's and Benelli's and Labrador's. And, and when we started our business, we actually uh, imported a few Bomoda kits because Bomoda wasn't making complete motorcycles in the early days. And we built them for our customers. And and once you saw the the level of detail and the precision and, and the, the design excellence, both from an aesthetic point of view and a functional point of view, it from a design person, from an engineering person, it really it, it really was the place for me to go. Yeah. That's I, terrific. I remember the the Delario and, and all those old Gucci's there were they just looked like a different, you know, different planet. They came from a different planet. It was they were so good looking, and the old the old Lavertas, um, correct. And, yeah, and and I think they were competing against the the Yamaha's XS back in the day, uh, and it was you know it was like riding different motorcycles. I remember riding <clears throat> riding a Gucci uh, versus I had a nineteen seventy nine XS four hundred. And it was it was like a different different world. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> you you were also a racer. I was uh, back when we first started my. So I, I worked for IBM for many years uh, as my real job that paid the bills. And uh, but as soon as I got my first Moto Guzzi, a uh, partner and I wanted to start a motorcycle shop, and we did. So he would he would watch it during the week and then i would watch it on the weekends when he had to work weekends so and we became a uh, franchise moto guzzi ducati dealers and so then we decided that that would be the perfect platform to go racing so our shop never made a penny of profit um, we managed to spend every penny of profit on the racing program and so we basically worked a second job to pay for racing and that's how we did it, and it, it worked out perfectly. We raced uh, uh, Moto Guzzi V7 Sport, and then we moved up to a Moto Guzzi Le Mans 1, and then a Moto Guzzi Le Mans 3, and then I switched over to a Ducati Bevel Drive 750 Sport, 
and my partner switched over to a Ducati F1 shortly after that, the original 750. And then I wasn't ready to go to that Ducati F1. I was a little bit older and, uh, and, and the writing was on the wall. I mean, when that bike came out, it was 50 pounds lighter than my Gucci, which had been stripped to the bare bone. And, you know, if you, if you race a motorcycle, you can't give your competition a 50 pound weight advantage because every time you get to the, the, the hard braking, you know, they go flying by while you're trying to wrestle this truck to the ground. So, um, that was the perfect time for me to retire. Did you ever ride uh, Santa Monica one? The Ducati Santa Monica? Uh, the F1 Santa Monica? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That was a, a very pretty. They made the Montjuic. They made the Santa Monica. Uh, they made three different versions of that one. And then they made the Pazzo, I remember. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Bemota DB1 has got uh, Montjuic engines in it. Um, the very last bunch that they built. Um uh, got the, the hot engines. They were built for actually for a guy in California who was the owner, owner of the Pomoda uh, Owners Club. And after the DB1 had been stopped production, they were so popular here in America that he went to the factory and asked them if they could build a handful more and he would buy them. And they contacted Ducati and Ducati had stopped production of the engines. But they looked in the old race shop, and apparently they found seven or eight Santa Monica or Montjuic engines uh, that were still brand new that were left over as spares for the racing program. And uh, they sold them to Bemota, and Bemota built eight more DB1s. Nice. Nice. Oh, wow. What's your uh, fondest racing memory? Uh, I don't know what's my fondest racing memory, but if you we, we started out doing endurance racing. And uh, and if you've ever been part of a team doing endurance racing, we had four riders, and and back in those days, we did 24 and 30 hour races. So you could start at like six o'clock on Saturday morning, and when the sun starts to come up Sunday morning at you know five o'clock or six o'clock in the morning, you, you're coming around and and you're exhausted, and it occurs to you you still have six more hours to go. And uh, it was just absolutely deflating to, to know that you still had to do this. But, you know, my partners and I won the 30 hours of Rockingham one year. So uh, that was probably the best, the best experience. Yeah, wins always a good thing. So what's an, an endurance racing, you know, besides the endurance of the rider and I guess bike reliability? Where, where are the uh, kind of important criteria to be up there and win? Well, well, I have to tell you that's why we that's why we started with the Moto Guzzi because the Moto Guzzi is is probably look. sorry about that. Um, we'll start over again. No, uh, the reliability. Yeah, yeah, the reliability issue in endurance racing. That's the reason we started with the Moto Guzzi because that Moto Guzzi engine actually was originally developed for an army vehicle for the Italian army. And it's, it's super, super, super simple and overbuilt. So, I mean, we could race the whole season with just, you know, a little valve refresh and uh, the thing was bulletproof. We never, ever had a mechanical failure with that engine. Oh, wow. I don't want to. I don't want to ask about the electrical, 
but have you ever had an electrical? Why are you laughing, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> have I ever had an electrical bike? <clears throat> electrical issues with the Gucci. Oh, electrical issues. No. Um, with with the Gucci, the original Gucci, they had a point ignition, so they were horrible. But you know, you put a dyna a dyna ignition on it, and now you had contact contact less points. We put XL <clears throat> coils on them, so we put some American technology in the electrical area, which which, but it had the same, uh, and we ran total loss, so we didn't have that problem. And so, um, no, I mean, it, all all you really needed was you know a battery, a couple of spark plugs, and uh, and something to tell it when to go. And uh, we did have lights though, because you know twenty four hour races, you had to have lights. But all that stuff was always German, you know, it was Hella and, and stuff like that. So we, we never had any electrical issues. That was long before computers. It was long before, you know, crappy voltage regulators and rectifiers. And so they were pretty, pretty robust. <laughs> we, That's the only great. time we really stopped endurance racing is when we crashed and we, we did that fairly often. <laughs> So what are the rules? Can you pick up your bike and keep going if it if it still runs? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, one time we, we were at, at a 24-hour race in, in Rockingham, North Carolina. And the thing that was amazing about those experiences were we would have four guys. So two guys would go on and off, hour on, hour off, hour on, hour off. And then you'd get a four-hour break to catch a little bit of sleep. But we were sleeping in a tent. And so I was having one of my one hour offs in the middle of the night with my partner. And even though you're sleeping, you could hear that between come around every single lap in your subconscious while you're sleeping. And all of a sudden I just sprang up because it didn't come around. And we had to figure out, uh, you know, where it was, had to go get it. We had got it, we brought it back to the pits. Well, my business partner was also at the races and he had ridden his street bike Le Mans one down to the to the weekend, and he was asleep. So my my real partner and I stole the entire front end off of his motorcycle. We disconnected <laughs> the triple clamps. We took the entire front end from his street bike. We put it on the race bike, and we got going again. And uh, we just kind of put a big tarp over his bike. And my partner woke up the next morning and you know had no earthly idea that this had happened and <laughs> and we ended up i think second we got a trophy so we got maybe probably didn't win but we probably got second or third and because we missed 45 minutes swapping out the front end and uh when my partner saw that we had actually stolen parts off of his brand new motorcycle he went ballistic he went out i said wait a minute wait a minute we're gonna put it back on don't worry about it you can ride home just you know, let us rest here a little bit after the race is over, and and uh, we'll, we'll fix you back up. You can ride back home. <laughs> so, how long was your racing career? Uh, about ten years. So, from 1979 to about 1989. Were they all crazy adventures like that? Sounds like you could ride. Absolutely, a absolutely. you know, because we were we were you know poor. We didn't we didn't have any you know, real sponsors other than our bike shop. And so everything was on a shoestring. The nice thing about those racing days, I will tell you, is that especially in some of the, the classes, like the twins classes, 
it was really not just about, you know, buying a bike in a store and putting a pipe on it and going racing. It was really about innovation. It was about, it was about, I'm on the bike riding it. So I want to beat you as a human being to another human being, but I'm also the engineer back at the shop and I'm also the craftsman back at the shop. And I want to try to figure out a way to make my bike better than your bike, because we had almost no rules because they were super bike rules. So for example, uh, our our Le Mans one had a monoshock. It was the only it was the only Moto Guzzi, to my knowledge, before they came out with with Dr. John's bike that had a monoshock. And the rules said that you could. I got protested every week, but the rules said you could relocate the shocks. So we did. We relocated the left shock to the middle and the right shock to the trash bin, and that worked <laughs> out perfectly. We relocated the shocks. Those were the rules. And uh, our bike outhandled every other bike on the on the track. It was just fantastic. Because we, you know, we can imagine going from two spindly little 1970s rear shocks to this massive. Uh, it was a big coney we put in the middle, and uh, the bike just handled superbly. But those were the kind of things. And then when you beat somebody, you felt like, well, not only did I outride you, but I also outthought you, and I out. I engineered you, and it was a total package. You know, it was really grassroots stuff, but it was great fun. Yeah, those, those yeah, grassroots that races. That sounds a lot. Yeah, uh, it, I'm saying it, was, it, it sounds a lot more fun than just taking quasi-identical bikes and then correct. racing them. Which you know, then yeah, of course, it's the talent of the rider, but then the other dimensions don't exist, which sounds like a lot of fun. Correct, and yeah. and and being an engineer and a, and a design person, that was the part that we we enjoyed the most and uh it was very satisfying yeah today today racing is mostly about cameras looking if you moved an inch off the you know off the track and then <laughs> giving you five seconds penalty and i don't, I don't think that i don't think that's the spirit of racing no yeah well that's a little bit the specialty of Gigi Delinia, right so you know he's reputed to be the guy who takes the rule book and peels it and tries to figure out where the loopholes and build something, and then Honda protests, and then Ducati wins, and then they, yes. they stay on top for two years, and then somebody catches up. Yeah, Ducati were always yeah. known for bending the rules. So, you know, good good, good on them. It's okay, Honda makes the rules, so it's okay if Ducati bends them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll Or we'll used see. to, at least. We'll see what they come up with. I mean, did, did you did you see... Uh, what, what was that, that race where uh marquez crashed so many times he was like yeah i'm, I'm not even i'm not even racing anymore he just crashed like yes. four times in practice and, and he was like yeah, yeah I'm, I, I just can't ride that thing so well it was it was very telling back in the i mean that honda's been that way for a long time there's been only only one human being that can actually tame that thing and that's been marquez for the last you know six seven eight nine years was was leaving Ducati to go back to Honda at the very end and someone interviewed Cal Crutchlow and said uh, who was the the second Honda rider at the time and said do you think Lorenzo's going to be able to come back and win another world championship he says poor Jorge he has no idea what he just got into he said the bike that he's going to try to ride is unrideable there's only one human being in the world that can ride that thing. And if you watch him, he crashes two or three times a race, but he's so good he saves it every time. And and Marquez was famous for that. 
he would literally crash and figure out a way to pop it back up through some magic and go on to win. But but that bike was really, really, and it still is, you know, really, really difficult. Yeah, and, and the guy rides like an animal. I mean, he just, you, yeah. you can tell well, he just wants to be first. He used to ride like an animal, but, you know, as you said, the weekend he crashed five times, he decided that, you know, no matter how hard I ride, I'm not going to win on this thing, and I'm not going to crash five times to finish 10th. So I think he's backed it off a little bit. Yeah, it's it, it's the same. It used to be the same with, with Rossi, where there was a time where he didn't accept it. He's not gonna. He's not gonna win anymore. Uh, and he was. Right. He was out riding himself, and he was. He was trying everything, but you could tell that whatever made that magic is is you know, it, it's just that the last little you know one hundred of a thing that you have when you're braking and you're accelerating. It just it wasn't there anymore, and he, he just he couldn't accept it. And sure. and I think Marquez is also at the same point where he can't accept it. Um, And I, I think his level of riding, if he if, if he's going to switch to Ducati right now, he still has a lot of podiums in him. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that's, you know, I don't think he's going to yeah. switch. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's a seat for him. That's, that's the problem. There's some rumors he might go to KTM, but uh, uh, I don't think there's a Ducati seat around. No. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see him on a KTM because that bike seems a little tricky to ride, but they got the power and they can turn. So with a good, talented rider. Well, but the nice thing about KTM is they're still young and they're still improving and they have a lot of passion. So, I mean, I think going forward, that bike is going to continue to get better and better and better. And so, you know, going there with the idea that you're going to be part of that journey is, is probably better for Marquez at this point than staying on the Honda because that's not going anywhere. Yeah. That would be fun to see. And I mean, I don't think Honda will quit. Otherwise, we'll end up with a Ducati Cup. There's one, two factory and 20 satellite teams. And <laughs> yeah. Pretty much yeah. It's a Ducati Cup right now. They're, they're talking about Suzuki coming back, but I don't, I don't know. They're, every, every year I see those rumors and every year they turn out to be false. So I, I, don't, I don't believe them anymore. So. Yeah, well, that's about silly season starting, right? It's always after the summer vacation that all the crazy rumors start and the prep for next year. So that's a lot of fun to watch. So, Bob, what are your prognostics about, well, I think this year is pretty much written, but you think there's going to be any changes to the ranking order or we're pretty much ending where we are now? You mean in MotoGP? Yes. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's two or three Ducati guys, and obviously Pecco is is at the top of his game, and he's on the best bike. So that's going to be a little bit difficult. But, you know, Betsecki is doing a hell of a job. Marini's looking good. Uh, Marquez's brother's looking good. Um, there's a lot of people out there, but I, I can't see anybody, you know, beating Pecco for the championship. He's, he's really in the zone right now. Yeah. Well, one thing we can be sure of, it's going to be a Ducati. Yes, <laughs> I think. It is. The well, uh, you know, the only one that even has a slight chance is Binder, because he's riding the wheels off that KTM week in and week out. But uh, he just doesn't have the bike to, to, to get all the way there. So I don't think he's going to win it. But I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't finish in the top two or three. Yeah, he, he knows that bike inside and out. How many years has he yeah. been with KTM? I mean, ever, ever since the beginning, I think. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think Moto three. He started with KTM. Yeah. I I think so, but uh, I have, I have to check. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's a KTM guy. Um. Well, yeah, he just renewed his contract for two more years, so yeah. he's there through twenty twenty six now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like their uh, their philosophy. Like like you mentioned, Bob, they have a lot of passion. They they build good bikes. They build great bikes. Yeah. Um, I just got the RC eighty, which you know is kind of like quasi Kramer with some KTM flavor on it. But they have engineered this bike to be like you know almost the perfect track bike. Right. Everything in it geared towards having fun on the track, and you could feel like the the philosophy of the company behind it. Mm -hmm. Nope. Uh, I had an old KTM enduro bike an old two-stroke and it was a fantastic bike and uh you know back in the day you know the, the enduro bikes were all pretty much japanese until ktm came along and they said we're going to try to compete in this market and they've really established themselves you know i mean they are they're equal to the japanese these days i think the last two-stroke that was a real animal was actually the bimota v duel yes i mean that uh that, that's a that's a one of my favorites. Um, if you look at a in a like a an Aprilia RS250, uh, I have one of those also. And um, you look at the wheelbase, and you look at the weight, and then you look at the Bomoda Vidue. The wheelbase is the same, and the weight's the same. The RS250 on a really good day will make about 58, 62 horsepower, and the Vidue makes 120. So I mean it's exactly the same bike with double the horsepower. Yeah. That was a that was an unfortunate experiment by by Bomoda because that bike was designed back in the day in the two-stroke GP era. The factories all had four cylinders, but Honda also made V twins for privateers, which were much less expensive to build, and that they could lease them to the privateers or sell them to the privateers. So Bomoda having a rich racing history, wanted to be a competitor to Honda and build two-cylinder GP bikes for privateers. And that's where the V-Due came along. And if you look at the V-Due engine layout, the V-Due engine was originally a Tezzi. So they were not only going to be in the two-stroke business, but they were going to try to get the Tezzi onto the GP grid. And then they also came up with the clean-burning direct injection. So... That was also built in that bike. So that bike on paper was just an unbelievable bike. The problem was it took them too long to build it, which is kind of typical because you're a very small factory. And by the time they got the thing ready to go, the Honda managed to influence the FIM to change the GP rules to four strokes. So it was immediately obsolete. I mean, they had just about had it ready and it was immediately obsolete. So then they had to try to turn it into a street bike, and they did, but they had some issues when they made the transition from a prototype to a production bike. The two biggest problems were the they had a, a crankshaft seal problem um, so that the, it wasn't a perfect seal and it would leak a little bit of air one way or the other, which would mess up the fueling. And then also all the prototypes had Ferrari fuel injectors which were no not available in, in a production situation. So the best production fuel injectors they could find were actually automotive in nature, and they were too large. They 
they would not get the flow in, in a very controlled way down at the very bottom end. So they had fuel injection issues and obviously they built 150 bikes. They had to recall 150 and went bankrupt. So it was, it was kind of a, a sad, a sad ending to a brilliant idea. I mean, since then we've, we've got them running all 150 of them are running someplace right now. Many of them are converted to carburetors just because two stroke people love to diddle with carburetors and they know, they know how to diddle with carburetors. So if you're in, you know, in a mountain or down at sea level or whatever, you can, you can make it work. Whereas if it's fuel ejected, you're going to have an issue. So um, many of them are carbureted, but there's a, there's a few people that have a, a, a good, uh, a good uh, fuel injection system that, that runs reliably these days, but all 150 of them are out there somewhat. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm, we have maybe, I, I think I've probably sold 15 or 20 of them in America and they're, sprinkled around i'm a big believer in two strokes i'm i'm a big believer in carburetors uh because yep. <laughs> still still to this day i mean if 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 you're open to gas i, I want to figure out you know the amount of air the amount of uh fuel that, that that's coming into the engine on the spot and i don't want to wait for something to tell me okay i'm going to give you a pulse of you know a pulse of this which is not not exactly you know, some, some, some bikes are jerky and some bikes are, it, it's just, they don't give you, when you open the throttle, they don't give you what you want. So I, right. I, I'm, I'm aware I'm old school, but, um, the, the future, well, what, what happened to two stroke engines was, shouldn't have happened, uh, because there's not enough, um, two strokes engines out there to affect any. Uh, an environmental, you know, to do, to make any environmental impact. There's just not enough of them. Uh, but they were a victim. Right. They were a victim of um, politicians, I guess. Yeah, it was it was it was definitely political. I mean, you you can imagine, you know, they they stopped making two stroke chainsaws. I mean, how much how much pollution are all the chainsaws in the world going to contribute? It's not equal to one big truck going down the road. So exactly, it's, uh, it was a little bit unfortunate, but you know, I guess it is what it is. Yeah. Now, Bill, you're muted. Good point. Sorry, I had I had to unmute because the dog was exercising his right of free speech. But uh, <laughs> the, the the issue, I think, is is more of what the chainsaw cut not the actual chainsaw emission because they're going after trees like there's no tomorrow, but you know, they don't see that as a problem. Anyway. Well, we could, we, we could also go back to two stroke lawnmowers and, uh, and, and you know, what, what do they cut to? So, so lumber. Yeah, all those, all those, all those little devices. I mean, the two stroke is so much lighter and so much easier to, to, to manage and, and rebuild. And, and it, it's just, it's just the right thing. I mean, nowadays, I think luckily all that now is going to be replaced by batteries. And from that perspective, that the battery technology is now getting so good, you can put batteries in all those little things, and, and they actually are quite useful pieces of equipment. But, but they don't have enough. They don't. They don't have enough power to power the grid for everything electric. So they they no, don't even know. The same, by the same token, how much. How much total? How much total pollution do do two-stroke lawnmowers make? 
Nothing. I mean, how much electricity or two-stroke or, or electric lawnmower is going to take? I mean, that's not going to be the issue. It's going to be when 18-wheelers are, are electric and, and you know, every pickup truck on the road is electric. That's going to get the grid. The, the little electric lawnmowers isn't, isn't going to be a problem for the very same reason. Yeah, but but even cars to an extent because uh, they equate a, a car charger to about four air conditioning units in terms right. of draw, and mm. in in a hot day in Arizona or Texas or California, they bring the grid down when really? everybody has their AC on. So if every house had an AC and an electric car, I think the point stands of where Gal's saying I don't think we can do what we say we want to do. And not only that, but I saw a hearing in the Senate where. The people that are in charge of converting everything into electricity don't actually know where the electricity is going to come from, and they don't even have the numbers because they just, you know, they do it because they're told. Everybody's told electric's the future, so nobody actually bothers to crunch the numbers and say, wait a minute, where are we going to get all that energy from? Nuclear? Well, I, I think there's there's a couple of couple of things to think about there one is to 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 build out the number of, of end users is going to take a very long time so so the momentum is starting to build there where the end users are now going to have electric vehicles say while that's happening people can be solving the other problem of where's the electricity going to come from because the two things are independent. And if there can be a breakthrough on where the electricity comes from, then that 20 or 30 years of building out the user base is going to be well on its way, and, and we can make that transition more simply. I think the bigger issue is going to be the transmission system, because no one seems to be worrying about how are we going to transmit the electricity from the source to the place where it needs to charge the vehicle. No one seems to be investing in in wires and infrastructure and all kinds of other stuff, which I think is going to be the missing link after we figure out, after we get wind power and solar power and, and nuclear power, God forbid, um, to generate all this electricity, then how are we going to get it to where it needs to get to? And that part, I think, is going to be a big problem that no one's spending enough time on. That's a very good point, actually. I have some experience in that. Uh, I'm an investor in a company that manufactured a digital twin with drones and helicopter pods so they can survey power lines. Ah. Um, and the idea would be to do, you know, now they send people with trucks and the people climb up the pole and they try to see if the connectors are still in good shape and if right. there's uh, isolators that are broken and so on and so forth. And then they try to measure how far the trees are from the power lines and so on and so forth. And that's cost of fortune. They, they can do like 10 miles a day, whereas, uh, or, or two miles a day, I think, whereas this new technology can do a lot of miles. The issue, the biggest issue this company is having is that we won't name the utilities, but they've gone to several utilities that said, we don't have the budget to do anything about it. So we don't want to know about the problems. They, they literally <laughs> said there are laws that obligate us that if we know about a problem, especially if, if wires are going to hit trees with winds and so on, we have a year to fix it. And since we don't have the budget, we actually don't want to know about it. So they're pacing them to give mm. them a very small amount of mileage at a time so they can take care of that and then gradually increase it. So 
you know, th there's no investment there to be made to upgrade the grid that quickly. And, and then you have the recycling problem, which I haven't read anything that told me they figured it out. You know, they keep talking about recycling some some chemical elements from the batteries that they could recycle, but I haven't seen anybody really building anything that's significant in that sense. Even even building those batteries with the cobalt, the cobalt mines. I don't know if you if you read those articles about the child labor. Uh, but oh, and the leaching fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So making those batteries is it's a horrible process for humanity. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't think the technology is there. I I, I know that there's a lot of re-education going on. Um, in the in the media and in the government, uh, and I don't think the people that are doing the re-education of the consumers are actually fully aware of not only what they're doing, but how they're going to solve the new issues they're creating. So, just my opinion. Well, I think I think the fundamental problem is the Earth's got too many people on it, and I didn't want to say it. They've gotten very comfortable with the amount of energy they want to they want to use, and and they can afford to buy. And there's really no, no one's identified yet uh, a source for this energy and, and how to deliver it. But that's what the problem is. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to say it because it, it sounds horrible. <laughs> but, but we do need to get back to 4 billion on the planet. I mean, we, we fished mm -hmm. all the oceans. We, we did irreparable damage to every, you know, every piece of metal, precious metal that's, that's in the ground. So... I think yeah, there's there's a lot of us, too many. Well, that we're we're uh, that diverging a little bit into Bob, your your kind of area of specialty, which is industrial design, and and your experience. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit because I, I was reading about your career and you know you've been an inventor of many things and and had a very successful career at IBM, and that kind of diverged into motorcycle. You want to tell us a little bit about that part? Yeah, tell, tell us well, how you invented the iPad 20 years before Steve Jones actually, <laughs> actually presented actually, it. Actually, we did. It was, it was, it was actually a project uh, that was an electronic newspaper. But at any rate, um, so I, I had quite a long career at IBM, 38 years. And the first half of that career, I was a, a, a machine product designer. We did communications products. We did printers. We did all kinds of stuff. And then I had an opportunity to go to Brazil for a couple of years, and we were we were um, expanding and set up a design center in Brazil for two years. And when I came back, I had another opportunity, and and that opportunity was was the best of my career. So they made me program director of a of a of a group called Strategic Design. What's so if you look at IBM as a company, we have or had the largest research division or business of any private industry company. So every year we had more patents than everybody else. All that basic research we did funded all the chips we used to make and all the different technologies we used to do. So, but one of the things that was starting to happen in the, in the 1990s was that we were not being perceived as a technology company. Um, all the, the, the technology press was centered around Apple and Microsoft and all these other Googles and all these other companies. And so I, 
IBM decided that what we what we needed to do was to build our image. So we set up this department called strategic design, and it was inside the marketing organization of all places. And they gave me a team of people. And what we did was we trolled all the hallways and all the IBM research facilities looking for cool pieces of raw technology research, science research. And then we would try to imagine how that could possibly be put to use to in products or services or whatever. And we would do concept models of what these new things would look like. And then we would do little scenario boards of how they would be used. And occasionally one of these things we would actually build into a working prototype. And it was particularly fun because A, you got to work with, so in, in, in IBM, all of the design people work in commercial divisions. So if you're in the printer division, you do printers. If you're in the PC division, you do PCs. If you're in the display division, banking division, whatever. But I didn't actually have a staff. So what I did was I looked through all those divisions and I would borrow a young designer for six months or, or nine months. And they would come to work for us on kind of a, as kind of a, a perk. So if you were doing particularly well in the printer division, you got to go to corporate for six months or nine months and get to play in this strategic design sandbox and really expand all the fun stuff you could do. And then you had to go back to work when that was all over. So mm -hmm. I got to work with our youngest and, and brightest design people. I got to work with some of the smartest scientists in the world. And we just basically had a budget to go have fun as long as it, the, and, and the only thing that we got measured on was how many, how many magazine articles were written about our stuff when they did surveys of people who we considered more innovative than we used to be considered. So it really was a, a, a fantastic job. And one of the things, as you mentioned, the, the iPad, um, one of the things we did was we, we thought about how information was being delivered to people. So you can think about, you know, the newspaper in the 1990s was still a valid piece of printed stuff you got at the corner store every day. And we just didn't think that that had much of a future. So we looked at it, we studied newspapers and, and news information distribution and all kinds of stuff. And uh, the one you're, you're talking about was actually done by one of my Japanese colleagues. And, and the thing sat on your, on, your, on your breakfast table and overnight it knew all the subjects you were interested in. And it would go out and scan the internet and find all the interesting articles about, let's say you're a motorcyclist. So it would find all these interesting news articles about motorcycles and download them while you were sleeping because we didn't have the greatest, you know, internet services back in the day. And they'd be sitting there for you in the morning and you get up, you get this tablet out and you see what, what it found for you. And you read two or three things with a cup of coffee and you go off to work. And so that was, that was, a, but the form factor, and, and I hadn't really thought about it, but the form factor is exactly an iPad. And, uh, you know, before that, we invented the MP3 player long before Apple invented the iPod. As a matter of fact, I remember an article they wrote in Scientific American when they were talking about the beginning of MP3 players, and, and they showed some photos of the ones we did, and, and, and the comment was that uh, it was actually a much uh, nicer, friendlier device than than the iPad iPod was. It was just 
we weren't in that business. That was the hardest thing about that job was that nothing we ever did would ever be built as a commercialized product because IBM stands for international business machines and business machines are only for doing business. So all the fun stuff and but but the public can't relate to business machines. They can't relate to innovation in the business world. So in order to, to pique their curiosity and to get us some innovative credit, we had to do consumer kinds of projects that would resonate with people and it would make magazine articles. But we, we knew from day one that we would never build any of them. Now we would license them to some people, but uh, we still had fun. It was it was an absolutely fantastic job. I and I did that for for eighteen years until I retired. And the only reason I retired was because I just wanted to do more motorcycles and, and less computer products. Uh, I also read you you did some uh, wearable technology also. Yeah, we actually had many many wearable. We did we did all kinds of stuff. We had you know, head mounted displays that you, you, know, you sort of, they'd be the equivalent to, of today's earbuds that everybody walks around with, but you would just wear it and it, it kind of came around from, from the, it sat over your ear and it just had this little, this little piece of crystal that had a display in it. And it wasn't, it wasn't like you were completely absorbed in this alternate world. It was just sort of like having your Apple watch attached to your head so you could glance over there and see if there was some information coming in that you wanted to, to look at and you could actually read short messages and stuff but you certainly weren't going to read a book on it and uh we just thought about different ways of getting that technology onto your person in a in a in a sort of non-intervening way that would allow you to get the information that we thought everyone was going to want and and as we look at it today, everybody does want, and it's everywhere. Did, did you have any challenges with the technology? Because I know the technologies 20 years ago and 30 years ago, you know, the processors weren't that strong. The internet connection wasn't there. Uh, the graphics cards were, you know, almost non-existent. Uh, you, you look at today's technology and you go like, if, if we only had this, it'd be a, you know, it'd be a hit. Yeah, actually, what we were more concerned with was the connection to the to the information, not necessarily the quality of how it was being presented. You know, the things you're talking about are obviously are obviously making that experience more rich. But what, what we were trying to do was just get you access wherever you were at whatever moment will get you access to information which was which was just really starting. I mean, SMS messaging was just starting to become popular. It was pop much more popular in Europe than it was in America. Um, but you know that kind of a thing where you could be connected 24 hours if you chose to be um, was really kind of what we were we were working on. Where do you see things going in the next 20 years? I mean, you were 20 years ago. You were doing things that people are using now. Uh, if, if you Correct. were if you were to think about what you want to design, where where do you think technology well, is going to be? In 20 actually, years? I was thinking about that this morning, and and the last project that I worked on at IBM was was our Watson computer. And as a matter of fact, we designed the the computer that played Jeopardy. And as a matter of fact, my team and I designed the the TV set that the Jeopardy game was played on. 
because uh, it wasn't that wasn't shot in California in the in the Jeopardy studio. It was shot in our main research facility in Yorktown, and we took the big stage and we built we built the stage for it. But the thing about the thing about Watson that was such a breakthrough was that it was a way that you could deal with what we call unstructured data. So every everything that most people know about that has to do with the computer, you take a piece of information and you put it someplace where you know where it is, and then you go to that place and you look for it. But the idea of Watson was it was unstructured. You would just read into this computer every Shakespeare play, every cookbook recipe, everything you could think of. And then in in a in the blink of an eye, that thing would search this entire massive amount of data, not a database. It was just a massive amount of data. And it would look for a couple of keywords. And then once it found the keywords, it would look next to those keywords to see what other keywords were there to see if it was getting close to what the question was. And then it would rank the association of the main two or three words it found to the other two or three words around it that it found. And it would say, I think there's an 84% chance that this thing has something to do with the question you just asked me. And it would do that faster than the human brain playing the Jeopardy game could do standing next to him. And it actually worked. So in my mind, that was kind of the, the, the last thing I worked on and so where are we going from here? Well, you just take that idea, you know, look at your chatbot. I mean, the chatbot is going to change. You won't recognize life in 20 years when everybody we know can use a chatbot and can can get things written for it, can, can find things that they don't know where they are. It's going to just revolutionize the entire world. So basically, <clears throat> basically AI. Well, You'll also read, though, the dangers of that, because you were now starting to get to a point where, where who's in control, and and you want to use it for good or evil, and so there's a there's a whole bunch of social questions that that people haven't really been taking seriously, except for the people that are in that field, and they recognize what what's going on, and they recognize the benefits, and also some of the potential disasters but the average person has no earthly idea how big this is going to be you know you know what's funny i'm, I'm looking at ai and um all the algorithms and all the neural networking in there and it's usually no more than 300 400 lines of code the entire algorithm it's not right. it's not that complicated it's just a lot of repetition um and a lot of computing power that today we do on the gpu right uh, right. So this technology that I think could have been experimented with back in the 50s, uh, we just didn't have the computing power we have today. That, that's yeah, and, and, Well, we have we had a lot of computing power, but it, it was absolutely centralized and it, and it was not accessible to uh, average person. Yeah. 
So that's been a, you brought up a very good point, Bob, that I think about sometimes too. It's, you know, these thousand execs in AI that send this concern letter to Congress and Sam Altman and Elon Musk, you know, speaking about the dangers of it. I mean, what in your view needs to happen to have some sense of control of the direction AI is going to so it, it is used for good and doesn't end up being this completely perverted uh, scenario? where it's used for evil or even, you know, takes over in like the Terminator uh, worst case scenario, right? You know, that's a that's a extremely difficult question because I used to think I used to believe in the in the in the goodness of humanity. And I have to tell you that in the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, there's so much evil going on there's so much people that are i mean what's the truth anymore i mean it used to be walter cronkite came on tv and he told you the truth or as much of the truth as he knew how to tell you and there's absolutely nobody you can trust anymore because everybody is is so self selfish and greedy and and wants to promote whatever their agenda is that i don't know that you're going to get a consensus to be able to affect really good controls over this stuff because it's not in the people who have the power's best interest to do so. Because I think they're gonna see this technology and they're gonna say, well, man, I can get rich with this or I can I can move my agenda forward. I can do all this other stuff with this thing. And so there's not gonna be a, a, lot, of, a lot of incentive for people to kind of dial this thing back in. So unless, the, the owners and the builders of the of the core technology decide to become socially responsible and and put some limits and stuff on this. I don't see how I don't see how this is gonna this is gonna get rained back in. I don't think there is a way to put limits on it uh, because all, all the algorithms are out there, open source on GitHub, so you can just download it, do it yourself. Right. Um, as as far as people are not. You know, people are not telling the truth anymore. I think also um, there used to be a, a phrase that said in the future, everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes. Um, and it turned out that in the future, everybody's famous forever. Right. You can uh, right. you can just go on Instagram and uh, you have, you know, people that really should not be on the Internet posting uh Posting their views or and opinions that are really not based on anything but their own uh, their own perceivement of the world. Uh, so Correct. you always have to know how to sift through uh, everything that that the internet serves you, which is the good and the bad, uh, and and figure out for yourself. Uh, the problem is that all that reeducation that that's going on systematically by uh, people that have a vested interest in uh, making you a consumer, uh, making you more compliant, uh, less resistance, uh, less, you know, thinking for yourself. Um, th- shall I say, dare I say, less masculine, right? Or less feminine. Yep. Um, and it's you just have to sit back and, and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know what's going on here and I'm, I'm not accepting it. So uh, it's it's up up for the individual with you know with with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility and your responsibility is to distinguish uh, is this is this real is this not real who's behind it why 
um, and just follow the process of people that are, you know, changing their mind based on the information they're exposed to 24/7, which might not be, you know, might not be the truth. Uh, and that's that, you know, that's the world we're living in. And I don't think that's changing. No. No, I, I agree 100%, but I think that's the reason why I don't see um, a way to manage this technology moving forward. I think it's going to be up to the individual to to either have some personal ethics or not have personal ethics and, and do it the way it is. But to your point, I think once this is more prolific, Every individual is going to have to start having a little bit of questioning in their minds and start to to actually think, which I know most people don't want to do. People don't want to think whether this is right or wrong. They're going to go to the source that they agree with, and they're going to listen to more of the same crap they've been listening to. Whereas I think you really need to start to, to ask yourself and question whether what you're seeing and reading and hearing and, and, and is being ex- you're being exposed to is actually the truth or not the truth. And uh, um, for, for whatever reason, people are reluctant to do that. Well, it's time consuming and it, it's intellectually tasking and you have to challenge your own preferences, Correct. which most people don't want to do that. And I, I don't think, I mean, it, it's got to start with our children because they're the ones who are going to be dealing with the brunt of it. And unfortunately, they've been used to be indoctrinated. And you have to I mean, spend a lot of time with mine just trying to make sure they question things and recoup opposing views to at least make up their own mind as opposed to being fed what to think. And, you know, successfully to an extent, and successful with some and failing with others. But uh, I think that's where it's got to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think you should challenge everything. And, you know, there, there's a, there's a, in this country, I don't want to get into politics too much, but um, this whole idea of, of we're Americans and we live in the best country in the world, that is true, but it, we don't live in a perfect country. And, and there's a lot of things that could be improved. And when you travel the world a lot, and and I've had the benefit of being able to do that, I mean, there are things in every country I've been to that are better than we have in this country. And the whole reason that that we are in the position we're in is because, you know, we're primarily made up of immigrants. And so they brought all these things to this country. And and back when we were a little more accepting, we took the best things from all the different people that, that were brought to us. And that's kind of how we made the stew that we've become. But if you start saying that that we're not, we are the best, and we don't, we can't get any better, you've really gotten into a very bad spot. And so I think you need to challenge every single thing you see, and you need to decide whether you believe it or not, and you're going to put it into your personal stew or not. And 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 your personal stew is is who you end up being when you finally leave this earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I read I read this morning that Caltech actually lowered their uh, standards of acceptance because many schools don't teach calculus anymore. Mm. And they were like, okay, so if, if you haven't learned calculus and you still want to go to Caltech, just you know take a take a free online course, which you know you might take or 
someone else might take for you. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, it's it, it's just weird that what's happening where you just you just lower lower the bar for everybody. Well, and I don't see how you can become an engineer without knowing some calculus. Uh, I mean, having been there, it's uh, it's sort of like you know, I want to be a scientist, but I don't want to do mathematics. It's like, I'm sorry, yeah, you have to do mathematics. That's sort of what this whole thing is built on. Yeah. And uh, now I can see, I can see where you know they don't teach how to use a slide rule anymore. I used to be quite good with a slide rule, and and we got replaced by the HP calculator, but Back when I took my final calculator into the into the exam, you could still take your slide rule. But you know that's a tool. But calculus is a fundamental part of your profession. If you don't know how the math works, then you obviously aren't going to understand the under. You might learn how to do a procedure by by rote learning, and you'd be able to repeat it. But you're not going to understand where it came from and how it's actually working from the bottom to do what you want it to do. So um, dumbing down is really getting to be a problem. Yeah, I was I was messing around the desk because I was bringing this one out. <laughs> <laughs> my, my math still have it. My math teacher <laughs> forbade us to do this, use any any calculator. And then um, my physics teacher loved it. So I would I would know to put the calculator on the desk on physics, but then remove it for uh, calculus. Hmm. Well, yeah, they made us use our brains, God forbid, you know? Yeah. Should we switch gears? Uh, let's talk about Bimoda. How did that connection uh, come about? I mean, you, you are actually, I mean, I, I, I look at your shop as an extension of the Bimoda factory because I had some, you know, I, I sent a question to Bimoda and I said, hey, let me ask Bob. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I uh, so where did Bimoda come from? Um, as I told you, I was in the motorcycle business from the late seventies. Um, back in those days, there was a small company in New Jersey called Motorsport and they imported kits. They went out of business and then Cosmopolitan in, in, in Pennsylvania started importing promoters and they brought in the, the last of the kits and they started with the DB ones in the, in the mid eighties. Then they kind of got tired. And another guy came along in the early 90s by the name of Rochetti, and he imported, he was a doctor. And why he decided to become the Bomoda importer, nobody knows. And he was a Bomoda importer for two years. He brought in way, he knew nothing about the business, brought in way too many bikes, didn't have a dealer network set up. And he went out of business after two years. But that's the reason there's so many YB10s in in this country because you know we probably had 40 of them and and, and the country really needed about 15. so uh there's a lot of dhs around but then the next guy came along was moto point and he was actually a good guy that was bob smith and he was the one that contacted me in the first place and rochetti had bought a container of tesi 1ds but he went out of business and they were stuck in customs and he never paid the factory for them. So there was there were 20 Tesi 1Bs sitting here in America in the customs that we that we couldn't get out. And so the new guy said, okay, I'm gonna buy those things out of customs, but 
I have to pay Bermuda for them first, and then I have to pay all the customs duty, and I don't have that kind of capital. So he tried to pre-sell some of these bikes to raise the capital to buy them so he could get them out. Long story. But anyway, he called all the people that he knew that were Italian bike fans and and or had some Bermuda association, and I was on that list. And eventually he sold me my first Tessie 1B. And so I was one of the first 20 that, that got those bikes. And then he was, he and I were, we did much, much work together over the years. And he retired when, when the BUA put Bermuda out of business, he was near the end of his run. So he retired at the same time. Then when Bermuda reestablished themselves in 2003, um, I was already personal friends with everybody at the factory because I I'd been there so many times that um, they reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to be the importer for a while? So I said, sure. So then I became, no, I became, well, we had another guy, uh, Jean-Marc Rousseau, who was technically the importer, but I was his largest dealer. And so I became his largest dealer, then Jean-Marc kind of disappeared and then I became the official importer. But uh, the Bermuda factory only has about mm, maybe 15 or 20 employees total. That includes the eight guys that build bikes, the two guys that work in the parts department, the two guys that work in the shipping department, uh, Pier Luigi Marconi, who's the managing director, my my best friend in Italy, Gianluca Galasso, who's the test rider, and the the kind of I would call him the chief operations officer. So every every problem goes to his desk, no matter what it has to do with. You know, he's the guy that's got to get it fixed. And then there's a couple of sector, you know, office workers, and that's the whole factory. So um, I mean, I can call them on the phone and talk to someone anytime I care to. And so it's a it's a very very tight relationship. Um, and I've been I've been importing now, uh, I guess probably probably ten years. So we have a we have a bunch of of, of unfortunate situations in that type of business because in America, in order to homologate a motorcycle to be U.S. legal, you have to petition the government with a whole bunch of tests and 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 EPA tests and safety tests and all this other stuff. Well, that process costs about eighty dollars to $100,000 per model. And every model has to be homologated as its own individual model. If you have a, if you have a 916 or, and then you want to do a 916 SP, you've got to do it again because the SP engine is different than the 916 was. If you just do a Bostrom version, and it's just a paint job, then that doesn't require any retesting. But if you do any kind of performance change, you've got to retest everything. Well, if you're bringing in 10 to 20 units and you have to pay $100,000 to make them legal, there's no way you can amortize that cost over that few number of units. So we haven't actually had a legal Bomoda in America since 2007. So the way we get around that is that um, there's a there's a whole bunch of st uh, of laws on the books that talk about small volume manufacturers, and this was really pretty much set up for all the 
the chopper builders and all the custom builders to allow them to build a product. You know, it's kind of the, the American, let's help the small business guy with some rules. So the rule is set up such that you can be a small volume manufacturer if you make less than 999 motorcycles a year. And you have to get registered. You have to be internationally registered because you have to create your own VIN numbers and the VIN numbers have to be in the proper format so that every country in the world can recognize what the information and the VIN number is. And you also have to use a drivetrain power plant system that comes from a motorcycle that has been homologated. So if I take, if I pick up a Harley system and I plunk it into a chopper, as long as that Harley system is the same more or less as it was in the Harley, you can manufacture a bike using that system. So the way we do it in the Bomoda world is that Bomoda builds the bikes in the factory. And then at the end of the line, they take it to a special room and they take the engine out. Then they put the rest of the bike in a crate. They put all the engines in a crate and they ship them to me. And then when I get them, I put them in the workshop and I take them into the same special room and I put the engine back in and I say, okay, now this is a Moto One because that's that's my company. So I will sell you a Moto One Tezzi. I'll sell you a Moto One KB4. I'll sell you a Moto One whatever. And it's got my VIN number, but it's legal. It's 100% legal everywhere except for California because California recognizes that process, but the the California Air Resources Board, the CARB people, they still want to do their own testing. They're, that's the only state in the country that does not accept the federal standards. They have their own set of standards. So you still have to pay them $50,000 per model. And so what we typically do is we just don't sell in California. So we haven't had any California legal bikes since 2007 or eight, um, but People in California are fairly clever, and they they figure out a way to take a forty nine state bike and and do what they have to do. <laughs> so we have been importing, and and I would say in the Bomoda world, we probably sell fifteen to twenty bikes a year in this country. The Tezzi H two, which is very expensive, seventy thousand um, dollars, far exceeded what I thought. I mean, I was going to get five to ten, and and we ended up selling twenty. So. Um, that was a, a very successful product. The KB4, which you're familiar with, um, has, is the most recent one. And we only got them in late May, June. So they haven't been here long enough to know what's going on. But but, but I've sold half of them, and uh, which is only five. And where that's going. And then there's a another version of that coming out in a, a kind of a stripped down cafe racer version that's coming out at the end of the year. We'll see how that goes. But the thing about the thing about Bomoda today is as as you and, and maybe some of the people listening know, they are now hundred percent owned by Kawasaki. So originally three years ago they were 50% owned by Kawasaki. Now they're hundred percent owned by Kawasaki. And that is an extremely good thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that had all those Ducati based promoters that went from 2004 till 2021 or two. Um, but in the, in a modern motorcycle development world, 
every motorcycle, every street motorcycle to be competitive in the marketplace has to have all kinds of electronics, has to have traction control, has to have anti-wheelie, has to have all of this stuff on it. Because otherwise, people think it's a dinosaur, and why would I buy that instead of a Japanese motorcycle or a BMW or a Ducati or whatever? And then it also has to have ABS now by law. So if you look at the development cost, those two sets of systems, ABS and all the traction control electronics has to be done per model. So you can't, you can't take an ABS system from one bike and put it on the other bike. It doesn't work. You've got to have, it's got to be specific for that model based on the weight and, and the way the brakes work and everything. And there's a, a, a very rigorous testing procedure. What well, turns out per model, the development cost of each of those two systems is about half a million dollars a piece. So for a small company like Bomoda that's going to make 150 units in the total run of a model, they can't afford to spend a million dollars developing two systems that, quite frankly, the user doesn't even care about. He just accepts that as, as you know, that's just there. And so that's not helping them sell motorcycles and, and, and make themselves different than everybody else or better than everybody else. That's just the cost of getting into the game. So at the end of kind of the, the late 2015s or so, those systems became absolutely mandatory and Bomoda couldn't afford to do it. So luckily Kawasaki came along and wanted to buy them to be kind of a halo brand for, for Kawasaki and everything worked out nicely. So now Kawasaki in Japan develops the ABS system, develops all the electronics. They also do all the exhaust system work. So all the dyno testing, all the ECU mapping, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of boring engineering backroom stuff that is really not, you know, core to the to the essence of the motorcycle, but has to be there. Now Kawasaki does, and they, they can use the economies of scale that they've got and, and the vast departments that they've got to get this done very efficiently. And Bomoda can now work on what they do best, which is chassis design and, and, and the overall concept of the platform and, and the exotic materials that they use and, and those kind of things that, that makes them who they are. Now, are they going to go with Kawasaki 100% uh, moving forward because they're owned by Kawasaki or is Kawasaki okay with, you know, putting in a Ducati engine for another, you know, DB6? Or I think... Kawasaki right now has told them, and, and, and I know for a fact, is allowing them to manage their business as an Italian company. So many of my friends used to work for Benelli. Well, Benelli was an Italian company, and they got bought out by the Chinese. When the Chinese bought them out, they became a Chinese company. I mean, they were run by the Chinese. They were managing directors, Chinese in the Italian factory. And then eventually all the development got moved to China. Kawasaki is treating Bomoda differently. They realize that they bought an Italian company and they want to be an Italian company. So there are no Japanese working in the Bomoda factory building. There's only one Japanese in all of Italy that manages Bomoda and that's the chief financial officer. And he's in Milan, which is four hour drive away. He's there because obviously he writes all the checks and he's got to, you know, make sure that, that, 
when the motor wants to spend money, they got to explain to him why they want to, how much money they need, why they want to spend it, and then keys to the checks and balances for Kawasaki that, you know, that, because Pomoda's gone bankrupt five or six times because they just spend whatever they want. They, they do stupid things and then they wake up one morning and they're broke. So um, there's, there's a certain amount of financial diligence that needs to happen to keep a good Italian company from hurting itself. And this CFO does that for them. But that said, they're allowed to do whatever they want to do. So I think it's technically possible that they could use somebody else's engine if there was a really good reason for that. Or maybe more specifically, if Kawasaki didn't have an engine that would do what they wanted to do. But um, I think for the for the foreseeable future, they'll be using Kawasaki stuff. Is there a chance we're going to see them uh, taking the Ninja 1000 engine and uh, dropping it into a chassis that that that's going to compete in World Superbike or even Moto America? Well, um, I I don't know. I I really Moto America not. Um, we don't have you know the reason you 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 run in the in in the national series is to help the national market, and we don't have a big enough market in America that that if we've got to be prominent in Moto America, it would fundamentally change the number of sales we have. So I don't, that will never, that will not likely happen for a very, very long time. In in World Superbike, um, they had the BB3 out there four or five years ago, and it was actually doing very well. The problem occurred, they had a provisional license to be in a World Superbike, and they were doing very well in World Superbike. They were being run by a, by a Netherlands team. And when they got halfway through the season, the FIM inspectors went to the factory and said, okay, show me the 150 bikes you built. And they couldn't show them the 150 bikes they built. They couldn't even show them 150 engines. So they became disqualified. So the World Superbike rules are such that you really have to be a superbike. You can't be a prototype. And I don't know that Bomoda wants to get into the kinds of volumes that would allow them to qualify in in that kind of a program. So um, they they vacillated around in the in the late 90s, they they had a couple of models, the SP6, where they actually got up around 800, 900 units in the total run of that, which which many people would say, okay, that was progress. Well, what they felt was they they watered themselves down. And, and they kind of lost their identity. And I think that became too much of a commercial product for what they view themselves as, as a company. And so then, like after they came back out of bankruptcy, I think they refocused on where they were and they, they really want to be a boutique company. They want to build 150 bikes per model and go to something different and innovate in some other way. And so I think that's going to be their business model. And if you're only building that few numbers, I really don't think you're going to race. Okay. Not in, in, in the way the motorsport world is. As, as okay. Now here, here's a question that's a little far-fetched. If they're a halo model, model for Kawasaki and Kawasaki doesn't have currently a representation in MotoGP, 
And in MotoGP, it's just prototypes. You don't have to sell as many, you know, or, or any bikes at all. Correct. Correct. It, is there any chance that Kawasaki would just go, here? here's a check, go, uh, go compete in MotoGP for us? No, I think the reason Kawasaki is not in MotoGP is because they don't want to write that check. I don't think I don't think it's a it's a brand issue. I think you know if you want to be in MotoGP, you better you better have a lot of money in that budget. And I think Kawasaki has felt like the benefit in in their image and their marketing program from being in for being in MotoGP is not going to the benefits are not going to justify the expenses. And and so that's the way. You know, most big companies make that decision, and I think they've they've kind of made it in that in that way. Okay. I mean, look at the Suzuki. I mean, they were in MotoGP, and and they literally had to pull out because they just felt like they couldn't afford to pay the checks anymore. Okay, which is really remarkable. And we're circling back around to the initial topic, which was MotoGP, and and it what makes it spectacularly remarkable is that a company as small as Ducati can have such a powerful representation on the grid, but they also realize, is, realize that racing success is their company. I mean, people buy Ducatis because they want, I mean, people buy Ferraris because Ferrari has got a glorious racing reputation and you were, you, you're more interested in wearing your jacket to dinner with a Ferrari logo on it than actually driving the Ferrari because because you can wear your jacket every day. You're not going to drive your Ferrari every day. And and I think people have in, in the Ducati world have such a powerful connection to their racing program that the percentage of the Ducati budget that goes into racing has got to far, far exceed all of their competition. And they've been doing well. I mean, they sell about 200, 220,000 bikes a year, which is not a negligible volume for Correct. Ducati. So they got some pockets. Yeah. Well, and they also have an Audi money too. So, uh, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's, it's, it's all going to come out of what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's part of the, they spread it around a little bit. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, it's, um, win on Sunday, sell on Monday for them. Yeah. Correct. Well, and 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 they're so powerful now that that you know every Ducati owner has such an an amazing amount of pride that that it, it, it's self self promoting itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Not, why you see so many at Starbucks. <laughs> That's why you see so many of them at Starbucks. <laughs> hey, speaking of Starbucks, so. Um, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, turning fifty this year, and yeah. uh, and Bimota is gonna be turning fifty, right? Uh, yes. Both both me and Bimota were were born at the same year. So uh, if if uh, if you guys don't already know, I decided to spoil myself. And and Bob, you can take the story from here. Okay. Well. Dal contacted me the other day and said, you know, I really like a Bimota. And uh, I said, well, I said, if you want to, if you if you want to buy a Bimota, I'd be happy to facilitate it for you. you know, where do you live? I live on the West Coast. I said, okay, well, then here's my local dealer. Go, go deal with my local dealer. And uh, 
I'm sure we'll fix you up. And Gal came back to me and said, that's all fine and dandy. Uh, are there any, are there any good deals out there? And I said, well, there can't be too many good deals because we're only bringing 10 in and five are sold. So there's only five left. And, you know, we're not discounting anything because there's only five left. Uh, you said, okay, well, okay. And, and, and then, I mean, literally a week later, uh, one of my customers from Virginia called me and said, Hey, he said, I love this KB4, but do you have any Tessie H2s left? And I said, I have one Tessie H2 left. He said, would you consider taking the KB4 back in trade for Tessie H2? And I said, yeah, I definitely consider doing that. And, uh, so we worked out a deal and I called gal and I said, gal, you are a lucky man. I said, there's only one used KB4 in the entire USA and I now have it back in stock. So I can give you, I can give you a good deal on it. And, uh, so we worked it out. So his, 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 and he asked another thing, which is very unusual, but this is, this is kind of a representative of the remote experience. He says, I really, I would like to ride this thing on the track once in a while. And in order to do so, I need a GP shift. He says, can you, can you possibly get me a GP shift? And so I, I looked at the bike. I said, yeah, I think we could invent something. And uh, he said, well, do you think the factory would do it? I said, I don't know. I, I, I called my friend, John Luca. I said, John Luca, I got a customer who wants a GP shift for KB4. What do you think? He says, I'll let you know in the morning. Comes back to me in the morning with a sketch and says, yeah, we can do this. You know, charge him 500 euros and tell me can happen 30 to 45 days. So, I mean, that's, that's what you get when you deal with a company of that size. I mean, you can imagine, you know, calling Honda and say, Honda, I'd like a GP ship, you know, for my, for my, whatever it is. And, uh, they <laughs> yeah, wouldn't even call them. but this, this company is, they really are a rider company. Uh, Gianluca, my, my best friend, uh, is a four or five time Italian national superbike champion and, uh, a uh, really super guy and, and, and they'll do anything for you. So it's all working out. The G the only GP ship KB4 will be heading less than 45 days. <laughs> Just in time for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great story for a beautiful bike. Now, the, the bad thing about it is this podcast, and we've done, what, 10, 11 of those, has been a constant stream of insults from Gal against <laughs> Italian bikes because I have Italian bikes, and and he, he laughs at me every time I have a little problem at the track or the bike doesn't start. <laughs> so now he can't do that anymore. Did, didn't that's you, correct. Didn't you that's spend the, the last track day we did together, didn't you spend most of it trying to suck the gas right out of the tank because there was water in there? <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, that's not an Italian problem. Well, I, I, did have, no. I did have two RSV4s, which were pretty okay, but then the horror stories about the valve guides just scared me off, and the bike wasn't like wasn't that great on the track anyway i mean it was it was it was great if you rode at 90 percent when but once you started really pushing it it was it would just it was just too heavy and too soft and didn't break right and um well so. i will tell you about this kb4 so 
my friend, I was in Italy on vacation last year, staying at Lake Como, and my friend Gianluca brought two, two KV4s up to the lake. And we spent all afternoon riding around the lake together. Well, obviously, I was following him because he can really ride. And I'm getting a little long, too. But that is that is one of the absolute best handling, wonderful bikes I've ever ridden. The thing about the KV4, the, the way the way Bomoda designs things, they look for basic principles. We talked about calculus a while ago. They know more about chassis and 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 the overall concept of a motorcycle than anyone that I know of. And if you look at the KV4, if, if you think about it, the a typical motorcycle has four cylinder across the frame engine, and then there's the front end. And in, in today's modern motorcycle world, you want as much weight on that front wheel as you can get when you design the bike. But you can only push the, the engine so far forward until it starts hitting the back of the forks. And so in between there, in, in a modern motorcycle, there's a radiator. So when, when these same two guys were at Benelli, they had a three-cylinder that was across the frame. And in order to, to put the radiator in front of it, it negated the narrowness of the three-cylinder. So they took the radiator from in front of it and they put it up underneath the seat and they put those big fans behind it to suck the air through. Well, they took the same concept on the KV4 and they took the radiator out from in between the front of the engine and the fork and they put it back up underneath the seat. And what this does is it makes the wheelbase on the KV4, which is a thousand cc's, equal to or less than what you get on a 600. So it's, it's the same concept that they had back in the day when they made the SB6. The SB6 has the same wheelbase and the same curb weight as a CB4, a CB600 F4, but they put the GSXR1100 engine in it. So you basically, it, it's like the V-Due and the Aprilia RS250. Well, this is exactly the same thing. So you could imagine riding a, uh, like a, like a Yamaha R6, but put the R1 engine in it. So the bike has become smaller and lighter and it absolutely handles fantastically because They've, they've got the geometry and and the flickability of it because the wheelbase is so short. So I think when you get this thing and you put it on the track, you're going to be astonished at how well the thing rides. And the other thing about Bomoda, which, which I don't think the other companies do, is that almost all modern design now is done on the computer. But Bomoda has, my friend Gianluca is the test driver. And he rides that bike eight hours a day for a year. And every single day, at the end of the day, he comes back and makes little notes and they tweak something and they tweak something and he rides it again the next day. And he rides it again the next day. And this guy is, is such a good rider. It's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, so there's certain riders that the, the or, or Freddie Spencer that understand the mechanics of the bike and what they're feeling. And they're able to communicate that to the engineers so that the engineers can, can make an appropriate change to change the feeling. 
And my friend John Luca is one of those people. So he rides this thing. Every bike they do, he rides and rides and rides. And they, they don't just ride it for three weeks and say, okay, that's close enough, ship it. He rides it for six months or he rides it for nine months. And every single day they do a little tweak and they do a little tweak and they do a little tweak. And at the end of the day, and, and you know, John Luca is also uh, during the summertime, he is a, uh, an Owens technician for World Superbike. So he's inside the Owens, he's inside the Owens big ring, and he's, he's you know, changing shock springs and, and, and fork valving for World Superbike riders. So that's the level at which he understands suspension and how it's supposed to work. So you are benefiting when you buy a Bomoda, you are benefiting from the hours and hours and hours that he spends in the saddle getting those things as, as good as they can be. That's good because I'm I'm a pretty spoiled guy ever since I got uh, my Carrie Andrew special, which is uh, GSXR that was especially built for me. And, okay. And that that bike is hands down the best motorcycle I've ever been on. Uh, so every every other motorcycle is is measured, you know, in in a yeah. in a yardstick that that is pretty unfair, um, and. The Bimota, even even the Bimota with with its you know enormous price tag, it's still cheaper than than the Carry Andrew <laughs> Special that, that, I, that I have. Sure it is. And and but, and but by but by the same token, I'm not sure this this is going to be quite as bespoke as the Carry Andrew Special. So yeah. you're going to have to temper your expectation just a little bit. But I think you'll be extremely pleased. So this is this is a road bike. So I'm going to use it as as a road bike but i'm i'm not going right. to resist uh and i and i will put it on the track a few times right uh but it when i when i saw that bike when i first saw that bike i wasn't impressed with uh, with the shape uh because of the air ducts uh and then i saw it painted and it and it kind of grew on me and now yeah. when i look at the pictures i think this is you know if james bond had a motorcycle that that probably would be it 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 looks bespoke uh, all, yes. the, all the parts look, you know, CNC'd. Um, the, there's nothing there that is off the shelf, uh, and everything everything is top notch quality, uh, include the, including the fairing. I mean, everything's carbon fiber over there. Uh, Correct. So, so really, this is the other, the other thing. The other thing about the bike is it's got ride height adjustment built in. It's got you know foot peg adjustments built in. It's got all this stuff that that that. Bomoda has always felt like was part of their DNA. And so the adjustability to, to make it yours is very simple. You don't have to buy aftermarket this, aftermarket that, aftermarket something else. It's already built in because that's the way they want to build something to start with. Yeah. And and Bimoda was, was always something that was <clears throat> unobtainable for me. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it was always, hey, when I, you know, when I get the, to this level of success or this level, you know. <laughs> You know, you know the people that get a Lamborghini because they sold the business or something like that. Right. So Correct. it's it was always something that was hey, if, if you know a Bimora is is the top that that you can get. Uh, so I'm I'm very happy to finally uh, finally get one. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're going to be. It, it's 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 kind of easy to get uh, infatuated with the prospect because you read about it you, you and, and you've seen it and it, but to actually receive it and ride it it's one of the few products that 
that actually exceeds my expectations. And that's very hard to do because I've really become jaded over the years. And and um like the like Tesi H2, I mean, I have never ridden a motorcycle like that before in, in my life. So and the KB4 when I had it at Lake Como was just absolute fun. So I think you'd be very happy. Good. It's a beautiful bike. And it seems very well appointed. Yeah, I mean it's got it's got all the best stuff. It's got, you know, Olins, it's got it's got uh OZ racing wheels. You know, these are these are you know forged aluminum wheels that just come stock. So you don't have to you don't have to go buy aftermarket parts to a, a lesser bike to try to get the performance you want because you know the good parts are already on there. And uh you know as you ride more and more motorcycles, the, the thing that ends up in, in my mind uh, as being the, the factor I'm looking for most is lightness. I mean, every bike I, I know of that's available today has got more than enough power for me to ride it on the street. But lightness and 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 mass centralization so that the thing flicks easily are the things that, that I find to be the things that separate your standard production bike from some of the more exotic bikes. And that's where the mode excels. So when you look at the bike across the parking lot, you don't necessarily see that, but when you actually experience it, it comes through to you because it's the accumulation of all of this stuff. You know, you put, what do you say? Five pounds, eight pounds in, in all carbon fiber bodywork. But that five pounds or eight pounds adds up. How much do you save in 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 forged aluminum wheels? You save five pounds on the front, seven pounds on the back. That's another twelve pounds you just saved. And so, if you if you look at the Kawasaki and you look at the Komodo with the same engine, you'll find that we're forty pounds lighter. Well, that forty pounds is in a massive amount, and it's forty pounds. A lot of it's reciprocating weight. A lot of it's unsprung weight. So. These are the kinds of things that, that even though you look at it, you go, well, you know, they're both thousand cc, blah, 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 blah. There's really a, a very significant difference. And as you, as you look at that curve, you know, you, you're hitting a point of diminishing returns. It costs you in the beginning, it costs you a hundred dollars to save five pounds. When you get toward the top, it costs you a hundred dollars to save a quarter of a pound because all the cheap savings are gone. Now you really have to start pushing the limit. To get those additional savings in weight and that's what you know sort of takes the price from you know twenty thousand dollars to forty thousand and it's and, and it's street legal and, and it's street legal my jixer is a race bike so right that's you know that's that's the main difference Yeah, well, good. I can't wait until you have it so I can ride it and toss it on turn one. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I, I didn't think we were going to talk about those things, but... Uh, so you get it in, what, 30 days? 45 days? 45 days, yep. My, I'm, going my to the fact, I'm, I'm going to the factory in two weeks, and um, I'll see the, the GP shifter. They'll probably have a, a hand CNC'd one there. And I'll be back three weeks after that. And by the time I get back, the GP shifter should be here. And as soon as that's here, I bolt it on. We'll ship the bike. Just, just remind him I'm I'm size thirteen. What's that? Just remind him I'm size thirteen in boots. Size thirteen. Okay. 
Well, I'm size 12, so there you go. That's great. All right. Any more questions, Bill? Well, I have a feeling we could talk with Bob for a week I know. And, and, and end up with just motorcycles, but everything else in life. But at some point, I think we have to wrap it up. You've been extremely generous with your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Bob. What are you, what are you working on now? And where can people find uh, you? Actually, actually, I've got one project that's kind of interesting. I'm designing a, a three-wheeled car. So it's kind of like a, a in between the World Wars Morgan. It's a throwback vintage thing. And uh, the chassis I'm having developed in South Africa, because in South Africa, they have a tremendous amount of technical expertise. And because the government is a little unstable, their currency isn't worth anything. So you can really get a lot of value from extremely good engineers. And so I've got an engineering guy over there that used to build GT40 replicas and 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 other kinds of replicas. So he's a chassis whiz, and we've developed this chassis. So I actually have 15 chassis here in, in my warehouse here in North Carolina, and I just finished the clay model of the body at Christmas time last year. So what's interesting is I took a bunch of photos of the clay model, and I shipped them over there. And then he's got a he's got a CAD guy that basically built the clay model in CAD, and now they're 3D printing a full size body. So they 3D printed the full size body. I went over in March, we tweaked it, we cut it, we pasted it back together again, and then we scanned it again, and now they're building they're 3D printing the final version of the body. And when that's done. We'll approve it again, which will probably be at the end of October. Um, and then we'll put a, a, a skim coat of, of some sort of filler on the top of it to make sure so we can get a high luster surface. We'll pull the most from it. And I'll be in a three-wheel car business probably in the spring of next year. What so are you going to call it? Uh, well, I got a couple of different ideas, but we... I can't tell you what it is because if I'll change my mind, it'll be different. But, uh, <laughs> and, and all those cars, all those cars that are out there, the Morgans and there's some other ones, they're all kind of British. But, you know, I'm an Italian guy. So the, so the, the inspiration for this car is an Alfa Romeo race car from 1938. So it's going to be a, going to be a very, very interesting. You know, as we all get a little bit older, you guys are much younger than me, but as we all get a little bit older, there's a lot of things that are, are, are working against us as far as continuing to ride motorcycles. For starters, your wife doesn't want to ride on the back anymore. Uh, you know, maybe you're getting a little gimpy in your feet and you, you're a little unstable with all the weight of the motorcycle. So this idea of a, of a, of a three-wheeler, not a trike where, you know, you've got some goofy wheel out front and it doesn't go around corners, but a proper three-wheeler with a side-by-side -side set of set of seats in it will still, mm -hmm. this has got no windshield, no top, no nothing. So it's as close to a motorcycle without being able to, without worrying about falling over and enticing your wife to ride with you as, as you can get. So this is kind of a, an extension of being passionate about motorcycles. Have you decided what engine you're going to put in it? Yes, yeah, Moto Guzzi's. I mean, they're they're the they're the 
the, the go-to engine because they're they're really automotive in nature and they're light and they're torquey and they're perfect. So uh, Motoguzzi 1200 V-Twins in keeping with the Italian theme. That's nice. going to make it lighter because there's no no radiator, right? There are well, it, not only that, but but we've managed to mate it to a Mazda RX-8 gearbox. So we now actually have an automotive gearbox, which has got a proper reverse and five speeds forward. And it, it worked out perfectly that we could get the two bell housings to, to come together with a small spacer and an interposer in between them. And it works absolutely perfectly. Do you, do you have pricing on it already? Is it, is it going to compete with the Polaris or I don't know if you remember the Raptor? It will be it it will be just under forty thousand dollars. That's a good price. Yep, because if you buy a, a, a if you bought the last generation Morgan three wheeler, it was sixty thousand dollars, fifty five to sixty, and we thought that was too expensive. If you buy one of these kits, you can get them for like twenty five or thirty thousand dollars, but they're really not very good. So. My idea was you make something that's really good and, and you, you, you bump it up over the stuff that's not very good by a little bit, but you stay well under the stuff that is, is only for rich people. And so uh, I think we're going to do well with this one. Sounds like it sounds like we're going to have to do a follow up episode. Well, yeah. one where we actually film the bike and, the, you know, the KB4 and then the collection and then have one yeah. where we look at this car when it comes out. I think that would be great fun. How, how can people That's reach good. you? What's that? How can people reach you? Uh, actually, the best way is just go to my Bimota Spirit website. So it's just www.bimota, B-I-M-O-T-A, Spirit, S-P-I-R-I-T, all one word, dot com. And there I am. So you get to see my museum. You get to see, you know, many of the what i've written is is kind of like a little monograph on some of the more iconic promoter models so you can read about a db1 in its history or sb2 in its history or tesi in its history and uh, i'm also actually now producing books about the motives so on some of the more iconic promoter models i have a really really good friend who's a, a professional photographer so we take many, many, many studio shots of, of one of the bikes from my museum, both with the bodywork on and with the bodywork off. And then we build a sort of a monograph book about that model, maybe 40 pages. And um, it's really nice because the quality of the photography and the printing is outstanding. And it's also, if you have the bike or you own the bike, you rarely see it with all the bodywork off. And, and the thing that makes a Bermuda so special is all the stuff that's underneath the cover because that's where all the magic happens. And so so to have a, 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 a monograph of, of the model you own, or just because you're interested in Bermuda's, um, you get to see that the absolute exquisite engineering that these guys have done ever since day one. Nice. That sounds like the way to do it, absolutely. Yep. So you're basically a walking, talking encyclopedia. Is that is that the word? Oof. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I've been at this a very very long time, and, and I'm extremely passionate. So in my spare time, I, I read about it, I research this stuff, and it just 
keeps accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. So when when anybody worldwide has some remote questions, um, I usually get asked. <laughs> well, Bob, thank you, thank you for your time today. We had a blast talking to you, and you have a lot of knowledge, and we're going to dig deeper into that brain at a, at a later episode. Well, I would, I would, I would especially like to do a follow up after you get the KB four. Oh yeah, because I think I think that would be great fun to hear to hear your personal experience, especially if you get a chance to put it on the track the whole way. Yeah, and, I think uh, the first thing I'm going to do. Yeah, I think the the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take it one do one of uh, Dale's track days in Chakwala, where those are those are pretty much private track days, no sessions, mm-hmm. where you can just you know get to know your bike. Uh, so I, I think that's the first thing I'm going to do, even before I register it in in Las Vegas. Mm. Okay, well I look forward to it, and uh, I will also be able to get you some information on any kind of setup stuff that uh, my friend John Luca recommends to transform it if there are some setting differences, like for example, tire pressures and, and, and preload stuff that is gonna change it because it's being delivered as, as a street bike. But you know, he tests them on the track all the time. So if there's some, some little tweaks and stuff that you can do that says, okay, well, I'm gonna put on the track, I'm gonna make these changes. You can easily make those changes and then when you take it back off, you, Put it back to okay bike. yeah it's it's got super courses right yes mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think it's i think it's uh 31 21 21 in the rear 31 that, that's that's how you start and then i'll adjust it towards the day depending on how it feels correct yeah correct well, that's a bit lowish considering you're probably about uh 50 kilos more than Gianluca. oh gal. oh okay <laughs> no 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 i don't think so Gianluca used to be a racer Gianluca now is an Italian, so oh he, really? Uh, he, he he he's he's not quite as as as, as slight as he used to be. So he, he'll give us a little information. I think I'm about one ninety now, dry. So one ninety, you 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 may be a pound or two less than Gianluca. So uh, <laughs> you're you'll be in good shape. <laughs> good. Well, there you go. Okay, well, this was another episode of what? What? What's the, the name of the podcast? podcast? Yeah, what's the name of the podcast, Nabil? Edge Grip. Edge Grip Podcast. This was another episode of Edge Grip Podcast. Thank you guys for uh, listening. Uh, I know we're not doing those episodes fast enough. You're not. We're not recording too many. Um, it's just that we just we're going for quality, not quantity. Uh, yeah, that too. But we just don't have the time. So I know, I know, Nabil, you just came back from a trip overseas. I was overseas as well. Uh, and I, I was busy with a few things and so were you. I know you guys are launching one of the, one of the companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're launching the uh, Monkey Money Neo Bank, and soon there's going to be another one called Justo that follows. So it's kept us busy. Okay, good. So we're, we're doing, we're doing as much as we can in the time span that we have. Uh, and we always try to bring you the best uh, material out there. So thank you, guys. <laughs>